commuter bikes, the heavier they are. I'm sitting in Trinity Bellwoods Park. My neighbors and I live in small units packed closely together above stores. There are no lawns, no balconies, it's tight. But we have this park. Better than any backyard, and it is my favorite place. My favorite because in a dense, expensive city, I'm still able to enjoy the benefits of a wide, open, green space with fresh air where my neighbors and I can enjoy city life together. It's my lawn, my living room, my office, and my gym. Then it's free. Anywhere else you want to hang out in the city, you'll be expected to purchase something. Not here. Without my park, I couldn't hack it in the city. Couldn't stand that stuffy little room above the nightclub. With it, I strike the perfect balance. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from the Broom Closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we speak to downtown Toronto councillor Joe Cressy about balancing the priorities of a dense urban core in need of green space in a city that's facing a social housing crisis. And we speak to Cheryl Case, a recent Ryerson urban planning grad and planner consultant Sean Galbraith about the overhousing in Toronto's inner suburbs. But first, we go to Vancouver where the homelessness issue is reaching a tipping point. Stand by. Ten years ago, at 950 Main Street in Vancouver, homeless people set up camp in a vacant lot there to protest the inaction on the housing file. Today, the so-called 10-year tent city has returned. Same place, same problem, same inaction. Homelessness in Metro Vancouver is estimated to have risen 30% since 2014, a pretty staggering spike. And so, homeless people and advocates have established Tent City not only as a protest, but as a practicality. They have nowhere else to go. This was echoed after the city sought an injunction against the residents and lost, in a surprising decision from Justice Nina Sharma, who refused to force the residents back on the street. Our reporter Andrew Walsh was in Vancouver and spoke to some of these residents. Records, if you just introduce yourself, if you don't mind. Sure, my name is Kia. Hi, Kia. Hi, how are you? Yeah, nice meeting you. Nice meeting you. So, uh, what do you, like, for you personally, what do you hope to accomplish by being here? Well, one of the reasons I'm here, um, the main reason is to be able to help the homeless people to get some type of safe housing. Um, but my other purpose is also representing the LGBT community. And uh, I think that one, this is a big thing for me is that transgendered people and LGBT, they don't have a place where they can go um, solely just for that, right? Solely just for the community um, to go and be safe, right? So we're always either with men or women. And um, so it's very hard for us. To, we get discriminated a lot um, as far as on the street as well as in the uh, 
the shelters and, and things like that. So I'm really hoping for uh, some kind of uh, idea as far as where we can get a, you know, just housing for, for LGBT or transgender people. Yeah. And what's your general, like, um, feel for the energy here at the Tent City, like, overall? It's pretty good. It's good. I mean, we're kind of close quarters because we don't have walls. But otherwise, it's pretty good. Yeah, that's about it. So I don't know what's going to be next. And for you as an individual, what do you hope happens? I'm hoping that we all get housing. Unfortunately, I need subsidized housing to live in with what I get. Uh, we'll find out. So that's all I can say about that. If they can't do that, well then, while we're at court, I'll just tell a lady, look, I've been given this and this is what they tell me. I have to live by it. Well, work, I, I can't live by this. So uh, can you uh, tell these people what to do or, you know, to make it sense? Because... Uh, you get a thousand and fifty, and you gotta pay nine hundred dollars rent. Well, there's the money for food. There's money for nothing. So, don't tell me that I have to buy my own parachute. Don't tell me I have to go and do this. Don't tell me because you know what? Every time, oh, denied, denied, denied. You have to go back, back, back. B.S. I don't think it's worth it. So I don't know. We'll find out. In my case, because I'm pregnant, um, better transitional housing that allows um, the father to be able to live with the mom and kid, you know? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Hmm? Um, what, what are you hoping that the government does, like, as a response, just in general, for this, like... As a response to, like, what? Like, what are you hoping the government... Are you hoping the government bring... Like, creates more housing? Like, affordable housing as a result of the tent city, or...? Well, of course. I sure hope so. <laughs> I hope they freaking at least do something now. I mean, it's been so long, and the homelessness has gone way out of control. Can I say something? Yes, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Uh... It's tough, like, my, my my way I look. Like, I've been looking, I've been searching for places, and I'm, on, I'm with two outreach programs. I've been waiting for so long, and a few of my buddies have been homeless not that very long, and he, he, he just sat on his ass all day for as long as I can remember. A couple of outreach workers approached him. He has no mental illness. He has nothing wrong with him. He got a place. Like, I, it's tough, you know, like... Cops pull me over sometimes twice a day just to just to search my bag because they think I'm a, a criminal and all I do is hit up dumpsters and donation bins. I don't rob people. I don't break into cars. I don't whatever. That's that's another... that's, that's the toughest thing to go through. I've been homeless for two years. I've been trying to get a place for like the last year. I've been looking. I've been hitting up SROs. I've been all, all my all, all my own. You know, it's rejected, 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 and now it's been rejected so much. I got a really big fear of rejection, and it, it's. Like, as soon as I can't do it anymore, it's like, it's embarrassing for me. It's my, I can't, it's overwhelming, you know?
Uh, is there has there been any response from what what have you seen has been the response from the government? Well, there. What the what what I think is happening is um, a lot of people that do need housing they're being directed to shelters, which is just kind of like a you know pass the ball type of thing you know for the next person to take care of. And these shelters are are um, I don't know if they're privately owned, but whatever it is is that. They're not. It just makes it worse. Makes everything worse. It's not a stable home where someone has a home to go to. You know, so their life is pretty much. The, the, that's all they see. You know, they don't see anything outside of that. So it's really important for people to be have their security. You know, in their their own place. And the SROs that they're, they they have in place for us are just ran down. I mean, nobody's taking care of them. You know, the government really, I think, needs to step into these SROs and take charge and just revamp the whole system. Something's not working, right? It's just not working. How do you feel about the response from the government so far? Let's not say there's been one. <laughs> Court, that was it. Okay, we won that, but uh, the government... Uh, they failed. Big F. That was it. So, I don't know. See what happens. We have to wait. For you personally, like this tent city, it's a very like recent event. But over the years, I mean, you see the housing issue getting worse and worse, and maybe not more is happening. But what have you seen is happening, and what what are your hopes? Yeah. Well. You know, homelessness is a, is a problem across this nationwide, you know. But there has to be, I think that we, you know, we all have to be treated equally is the problem. And uh, I've not, I have not seen, I've seen one building being built here since I've been here in 2008. That was for, for uh, homeless people that have mental issues. And that building is such a great place for them. I mean, it's so well ran, so well organized. Um, and I think that that building there is a prime example of what what we need more of right so i haven't seen anything being built since then or even advertisements saying there is going to be something built you know so if we need to just see something starting to happen new construction just happening i mean i would be happy just that little difference you know i want to make is that we're all real people you know we all we all love and we all cry and we all hurt and you know, more so if we're homeless because we're taken advantage of and thrown away from society all our lives, you know. So people do need a chance, right? And thank you again to Andrew Walsh, radio journalist and graphic designer, for reporting. Go follow Andrew on Twitter at andwalsh, that's A-N-D-W-A-L-S-H. Next up. While we usually talk about housing issues in Toronto in terms of the need for more supply to meet the soaring demand, Cheryl Case and Tatiana Bailey authored a report that looks at housing challenges from a different angle. As the Toronto Star's Tess Kalinowski reported, Case's report shows the inner suburbs are zoned for a housing type that doesn't reflect modern lifestyles and it's limiting the vibrancy of these neighborhoods. 
I spoke to Case and her mentor, Sean Galbraith, about the report, what's at issue, and what can be done. So you just uh, co-authored a report, and uh, you uncovered a, a sort of problem that may speak to some of the sh- housing shortage issues that we have in, in the city. Uh, yeah, so I started this research as part of uh, my class. It was a uh, planning and implementation class. So um, my question was, uh, so I see a lot of houses in the inner suburbs being redeveloped to larger houses, right? You'd demolish a bungalow and you put up a two-story uh, detached house. Um, what is that? Is that related to anything else that's happening in the inner suburbs, right? And so I found that there actually is a lot of things going on in the inner suburbs that aren't being talked about, right? So I decided to talk about those things. So how do we protect the vibrancy of the inner suburbs? Well, first of all, we have to look at what's happening there. Right. And can you describe uh, what, what you mean by vibrancy? So vibrancy means... Um, so. One of the things that I looked at when talking about vibrancy is the relationship between land use, population, and schools being closed in across the city. So there's actually a great relationship where in the inner suburbs specifically, um, po- neighborhoods are declining in population, uh, household sizes are decreasing, um, and in these same neighborhoods, the uh, schools are also under review for closure, right? That means that they have 65% or under enrollment. Um, And this has resulted in over 90% of Toronto's neighborhoods being threatened in terms of their family friendliness for um, prospective families to move into these neighborhoods, right? So protecting the vibrancy means to enable these communities to be a worthwhile and um, healthy places for families to move into where they'll have access to transit, uh, school, and other amenities as they require. Right, and so part of what you uncovered was that, um, you know, we, we have these houses built for uh, for another era where there were uh, larger nuclear families, and now these are partially empty or not not as full as they used to be, uh, and these houses could maybe be used for a better purpose uh, if it wasn't the, the question of what, what they're zoned for. Yeah, so um, personally, this is getting a little bit personal. Maybe this is something that we can start discussing maybe in the planning sphere, right? So the whole title of single detached home, I think that's inappropriate to be uh, titling a land use as single detached or single family, sorry, uh, because you're not supposed to zone for the use of the people inside of the house, right? So you can, for example, zone to say that it's a detached house, but uh, many many times you'll find that there are multiple families living in these detached houses because there is the space in these properties to provide uh, housing for multiple families. So I think that's something that we need to address in the planning world in terms of um, looking at the declining uh, household sizes and um, how do we provide more houses for those smaller families. Right. And so we're talking a lot in Toronto about uh, how how we might improve housing affordability uh, if we increase the stock. But what you're saying is some of these areas, the way they're zoned, uh, it doesn't permit for extra units. It doesn't prevent for, uh, you know, uh, anything except this old concept of, like you say, a single family home. Yeah. So in terms of providing more supply, um, there are families who take it upon themselves to provide rental units for those who are looking to rent out a basement or maybe a second story of the house or whatever. But um, we need to make it more accessible for people to develop those spaces where perhaps um, someone can own you know, what used to be one detached house. There could be two owners, right? And those two owners can rent on their own uh, 
choice or they can live in those spaces and enjoy that space on their own. Um, also, a lot of these houses are detached. Um, although they do have uh, basement suites, they don't really have the type of design that would facilitate for renters to uh, live a separate life, right? So, there's, for example, there might not be a second entrance. So that secondary basement suite is, uh, unus- is useless, essentially. And so in terms of in terms of moving forward or the the political reality maybe we can't move forward but what is uh, what is impeding this this kind of uh re- reimagination of these neighborhoods to make them vibrant So right now um you have official plan and zoning restrictions in the city um a term that has been coined by Gil Meslin called the yellow belt where Changing, changing the built form to provide for uses that are not currently in the neighborhood is pretty much prohibited. So um, in Etobicoke and North York and Scarborough, primarily in East York, you have zoning that is called RD, residential detached. And in those areas, all you can build is a house. You can't build a duplex, a triplex, a walk-up four-story, all these great mixes of of uh, multi-tenant residential that you find in great neighborhoods like the Annex and Parkdale. You just can't build at all um, uh, in, uh, in these residential detached zones. And that encompasses over 60% of all residential zoning in Toronto. Uh, that's a lot of land that is shrink-wrapped to what is currently there, a house. Maybe it's a bungalow, and you can build a larger house, but you can't subdivide it into two units. It shouldn't be harder to build a two-unit house-sized structure than it is to build a one-unit house-sized structure. It's a term called the missing middle. And it's missing in Toronto because we've outlawed it in most of the city. Um, and in order to provide more units, more variety of units in more places in the city, we need to address these policy restrictions that expressly prohibit it. Um, We get things like towers downtown, and we get things like, um, you know, mid-rise development on avenues by policy design. They show up there because that's where they're going there. That's where we want them to go. But they're also going there because we've locked off a lot of the city from small projects that could easily accommodate a lot of people. We've got 20,000 hectares of residential detached zoning in Toronto. You stick one duplex uh, per hectare and you've just added population of, you know, 44,500 people or so. And you've not changed the neighborhood character one iota. And so does that kind of leave people who are looking for uh, reasonably priced homes or rental situations all scrambling for the same small piece of the pie? It does. Um, and it, it means you can't, you can't look if – you're, if you're looking in a neighborhood and it's not in downtown Toronto or the old city of Toronto, maybe you could have afforded to buy a, a small house or an old you know, a, a bungalow neighbor, in a bungalow neighborhood um, – in parts of Toronto, but you can only afford to do it if you could make it a small duplex and share that unit with another family or with your own family. But you each wanted, you know, multi-generational aging in place situation. You can't do that. Zoning prohibits it. And if you wanted to attempt to do 
uh, a rezoning to allow it. I mean, God bless you for trying. You're not going to get. You're not going to be successful, and it's going to cost you probably close to eighty to hundred thousand dollars just to attempt it. And returning to uh, the the actual report, um, your methodology, uh, you kind of made use of the latest census info. So this is something that we we haven't really seen yet. Ah, uh, yeah. So to conduct this study, I looked at data from 1986, 2001, and 2016. Um, still waiting for the. Um, dwelling type data from 2016, uh, but I was able to use the uh, population data and the number of occupied private dwellings, um, which indicates that um, the number of people per uh, private dwelling is decreasing over time uh, since 1986. And do you have plans to further carry this research forward? Currently, I'm working with the uh, United Nations for the Inclusive City Summit, which is where uh, phase two of this research will be uh, further discussed with um, other stakeholders who would be invited to this event. And as, as part of this research, I'm also looking to connect with community groups to hear about what they are looking for and what they find is missing in their neighborhoods, right? So uh, growth and providing more housing in these neighborhoods does not take away from the neighborhoods. It adds to these neighborhoods and it can add in vo- multiple different ways, right? So it's important to reach out to these communities and see what they're looking for and what, they, what they're missing, right? To see how... Um, bringing more housing can also benefit them and enrich their neighborhoods. One of the most surprising statistics that Cheryl found was that in, even though Toronto is experiencing this amazing growth, how extremely localized it is. In something like 30 of 140 neighborhoods in Toronto, we have population decline. And since 1986, that's correct. And, um, in an, another 65 neighborhoods, population is completely stagnant. Uh, less than one person per square kilometer increase. That is directly in contrast to, you know, old Toronto, the downtown core, um, Young and Egg, where it's booming or is going to be booming when the condos are finished building. The, uh, the Young Corridor in North York, we have these extreme population crunches, um, and then we have neighborhoods that are, while not suffocating, they are extremely stagnant to decreasing, putting strain on community resources, on schools. Um, we're missing opportunities to build complete communities, to provide more opportunities for families, to you know support aging in place uh, uh, programs. It's it is these these this large area of the city, something like thirty two percent of the landmass of the city of Toronto, is essentially wasted on houses that have one or two people in them. And so um, that it becomes an equity issue, right? If you look at the priority neighborhoods, uh, most of these are in the uh, inner suburbs and neighborhoods that have been identified in my research as either declining or stagnant population. So people who are already disadvantaged are becoming more disadvantaged because um, the lower the population and the more dispersed the population, the less likely they are to access resources. And um, it just further accelerates the decline and the uh, equity issues of Toronto. And when we speak about these, the concept of a complete community, it seems that the status quo zoning is, is prohibitive. It doesn't allow for these complete communities. 
Uh, yeah, because um, as as we mentioned, right? So there's there's a lack of growth in these communities, right? So if you're not able to grow the population, how are you supposed to grow the resources? These were neighborhoods that were planned and built, or planned in you know the 1950s, 1960s, using um, you know the planning theory at the time. Separate the uses. Everybody wants a, a house, um, and they've stayed there. The city has moved on. We are building differently. If we were, if these were greenfield neighborhoods, we wouldn't build them the same way that we did back then. I hope not. It would be a, a, a waste of land to build it the same way as we used to. I think we have an opportunity to repair that sprawl damage and provide very gentle intensification on a small scale. We're not talking about blockbusting. We're not talking about bulldozing neighborhoods and building new towers or anything like that. We're talking, or I'm talking about, relaxing some of the significant restrictions to allow the neighborhood to evolve reflecting the current demographic nature of the city of Toronto, provide more options in more areas. Well, I want to thank you both for taking the time to speak with me. And thank you for inviting us. You're very welcome. The planned 21-acre rail deck park in Toronto, if it comes to fruition, will be a legacy project, something to be enjoyed by residents and visitors alike for years. But the price will be steep, easily over a billion dollars, which, in a city which claims it's too poor to maintain their social housing stock and which will likely have to shutter a thousand units in the coming year, for some a downtown park seems like an extravagance. We talked to Councillor Joe Cressy about the park and about the difficulty of balancing the city's priorities. So, Councillor, first off, uh, if we could get a little update about uh, Rail Deck Park, uh, where we're at in in the process. Uh, I know it has the support of the mayor, uh, the support of uh, the chief planner's office. Uh, so we've been talking a lot about it. We've been uh, getting excited. Uh, where are we at right now? Well, City Council, back in September, uh, gave authorization for a couple of pieces of work to get done. First of all, to do an official plan amendment. Uh, to, for the city to determine the land use for the rail deck uh, and to determine that as parkland. And so that OPA uh, will be coming back for approval this fall, uh, which is an important first step. That is for the city to state explicitly that we see this space as park space um, for the future and hopefully for the immediate. The other piece that we authorized in September, which is coming back in the fall, uh, in September hopefully, is the other pieces, looking at the engineering and structural analysis, looking at the cost, costing uh, and the funding strategy, and looking at the implementation approach. So where we're at is we're moving forward right now, uh, and in the fall when we have those details, we'll have a more robust debate about how to proceed. Right, and uh, we're still sort of talking about um, who owns the air rights over, over the rail deck. Is, is there any movement on that? Well, that's part of it. And so part of the funding strategy uh, is the air rights and the negotiation. Those are active conversations which are underway right now. Uh, and and they're, they're proceeding as these negotiations do. Uh, listen, the city determines the land use designation, and we've determined it as parkland. And so we'll acquire the rights for, for a park. 
Now, the park seems to have uh, support in general on council. Uh, there may be some arguments uh, with certain councils, uh, councillors against it uh, for their personal reasons. Uh, but uh, an interesting thing that I have been seeing online is that um, some people from the left wing are a little bit worried um, that uh, this is not the right place to spend uh, over a billion dollars when when we're doing things like foreclosing, uh, shuttering uh, Toronto community housing units and things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, you know these balancing these uh, these priorities? Sure. I mean, listen. I think great cities are both equitable and livable cities, and. This should not be an either-or proposition. And frankly, when we make it an either-or proposition, we as a city and, and uh, frankly, the left, we sell ourselves short, is if we believe that we need a transformational signature public space and a park in the area of greatest efficiency in the entire city, then we should go and create it. And if we believe, as we should, that we shouldn't close a single damn unit of public housing, in fact, we should be building housing, then we should go do it. I mean, we have a responsibility to build a city. And if you want to build a great, equitable, sustainable, and livable city, then you expand the pie and you expand the number of resources you have to build it. You don't endlessly, endlessly talk about divvying up the pie differently. And so what I would say to, to people who like the idea but are worried about the funding Make the case for the funding for both, for both housing and for parks. Right. And uh, in terms of parks, uh, with the Ontario Planning Act, uh, there is a Section 42, uh, which guarantees that we put aside a certain amount of money for, for specifically park use. Yeah. And I mean, that's the other factor here is that uh, it's not like the parkland acquisition funds that we have can be used on, on housing. We have money that is set aside that can be used for one thing and one thing only, to build and buy parkland. And it's time we did it. We haven't for years, and that's why we're suffering the consequences of a parkland-deficient downtown with increasing density. If we don't do a transformational move like this now, we will never get the parkland downtown desperately needs. The population of downtown is doubling in the next 25 years. There is simply not 21 acres of space kicking around unless we start tearing down buildings to do it. Um, And the cost is becoming more and more prohibitive. We have to be more creative about this. So, yeah, listen, Rail Deck Park, it's one of these things that 25 years from now after it's built, we'll all look back and say, thank goodness we did it. And, and you know, for, for years, great ideas in this city, um, you know, they die on the floor of nickel and diming. Whether it's a nickel, it, whether it's a council that's afraid to spend the funds needed to make our city uh, as great as it should be, or whether, frankly, it's... It's naysayers who have an easier time saying no to things as opposed to making the case for yes. And I think part of the opposition as well is um, we, we know from David Holchansky's Three City Report um, that uh, there is a, a sort of amassing of, of greater uh, wealth uh, in the downtown area as, as opposed to the uh, inner suburbs like Scarborough, Etobicoke, etc. Some people see this as doesn't the downtown have everything? Why, why did they get this now as well? So here's this, the, the state of play for downtown Toronto. Uh, the, if Toronto is doing well, it's because downtown is doing well. It's not either or. So right now, one quarter of all the tax dollars in the entire city are generated in downtown Toronto. And those tax dollars go to support programs, resources, and capital projects across the city. Right now, 51% of the GDP generated in the city of Toronto is generated downtown. One-third of all the jobs in the entire city 
are located downtown. Uh, and then when you consider that our parkland acquisition funds, our development charges, which go to support parkland acquisition across the city, as well as the DCs that go to support infrastructure across the city, that comes from downtown. And so, yeah, we have a choice to make. When downtown does well, the city of Toronto does well. But we cannot continue to develop at the pace we're developing now, which produces huge wealth and benefit for the entire city. We cannot continue to develop downtown without providing the livable infrastructure downtown. So unless the rest of the city wants us to stop development downtown, which hurts them, it's time to invest downtown. And, uh, you know, I can say anecdotally today, uh, I live in Little Portugal. Uh, I don't have a, a balcony or a patio. Uh, and so I, I decided to spend a little time today doing work and getting some fresh air in Trinity Bellwoods Park. That, that is my backyard. That's my patio. Um, you know, you, you'd think you could take the benefits of having a park uh, for granted. Uh, but uh, in some, some corners, it, it, it's not obvious. And uh, so what's, you know, environmentally, psychologically, uh, in terms of health benefits, actual physical health benefits, what can a park provide? Well, listen, I mean, the park provides as an ecosystem a whole range of benefits, whether it's the passive space for for increasingly people who live in vertical communities to have a passive space as a backyard, or whether it's the active play space for young people, because we are a city where we have the young and the old living downtown, active spaces for people to, to have fun and reconnect. Parks provide all sorts of benefits, to say nothing of the environmental carbon capture benefits. But, you know, we all understand the importance of parks. Every, every neighborhood, every community, every councillor gets it, and we understand that there's a deficiency of parks down here. I guess where I, when, I, when I'm talking about Rail Deck Park uh, and some of the debates around it, what troubles me is when we start thinking small again, right, is... Toronto in so many ways is a great city in spite of itself, not because of the decisions we make at City Hall. And here's one of those decisions we can make to actually improve the city for the next century. And already we're debating whether, you know, are we really a city like that? Do we really invest in our future? Should we not think small? Uh, and that's, you know, for me, it's time to think big. And getting down to, to the small, on the, on the other hand, um, you know, we're, we're going to have another budget debate and, uh, and we're going to uh, debate the, the tax level and, what, mm -hmm. you know, how we should fund and what, what are our funding priorities. In terms of things like the state of good repair for the TCHC, how do we... The, the saying goes that nobody takes a, a photo in front of a working elevator, but we need working elevators in the city, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so how, how do we get people as excited about uh, funding the state of good repair for something like TCHC or, or transit uh, um, when it's not as flashy as, as something, a major project, a legacy project like Rail Deck Park? I mean, I think the test of a city is how well it cares for the people who live here. I mean, that's the real test of a city. The test of a city is not if the tax rate is, is at or below the rate of inflation. Right? The test of a city is, is how well we're caring for people who are struggling. And on that basis, we are failing as a city. That on the one hand, the city is doing very well. The Economist magazine says we're the most livable city in the world. Uh, you know, we're the most diverse city in the world, according to BPC. We have more high-rises under construction than any city in North America. Those are all interesting laurels. But on the other hand, we're the inequality capital of Canada, according to the United Way. And we have a waiting list of nearly 170,000 people waiting for housing. Uh, so how do you get people excited about empathy? Uh, 
I suppose this is a question you're asking. Um, if people aren't excited about it, we organize on it. I guess that's my answer, is if people don't feel it in their bones, the, the moral responsibility to take care of, of those who need support, uh, then we as, as a society need to organize to make people care. And while I have you, the upcoming issue of Spacing Magazine is 21st Century Parks. We're looking at uh, new ideas uh, because in an increasingly uh, intensified and dense uh, downtown, you have to come up with creative solutions uh, to build parks. Yep. Rail deck parks is one such idea. Are there other, uh, other kind of avenues we could go to, to help secure green space in a, in a dense downtown core? Yeah. I mean, some of the things underway in the city on that front, I mean, obviously rail deck... Cr- park it's hard to not call it creative that's for sure i suppose uh the undergardener the bentway would be another example certainly the green line in in densifying cities we need to and this has been shown around the world we need to be more creative in finding underutilized spaces uh i guess the other thing we need to be smarter about is greening in general and while we need park spaces and large park spaces for the type of active play that, that feeds the soul and that kids enjoy. We also just need to do a better job of thinking about uh, the greening of our general infrastructure. And so, uh, you know, in one neighborhood in my ward in Harvard Village, we created a green plan where we went and systematically looked at all the pinch points and flankage corners where we could green uh, the infrastructure there. And, I mean, to me, that's another example of just establishing increased greening and canopy opportunities alongside the more creative park opportunities. All right. Well, Councillor Carsey, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. You bet, man. Thanks. And you can learn more about urban green space in the 21st century in the upcoming issue of Spacing Magazine, in store soon. In those pages, you'll read about park conservancies, parks doubling as essential infrastructure, and solving the problem of adding green space to the dense urban core. Look for it. In Toronto and Vancouver, housing is at a crisis point. In BC, it's uncertain how the balance of provincial power will shake out and whether or not it will benefit those advocating for affordable places to live. In Toronto, we're staring down a 2.6 billion state of good repair backlog for our community housing. City Council refuses to raise the tax rate high enough to pay for it, while the province refuses to upload the burden originally thrust on the city following amalgamation. On the other hand, no one issue can dominate a city's agenda. Cities need affordable housing and transit for the people inside that housing, and places to exercise, to gather, and relax. When this balance isn't struck, it creates tensions among people about what to do with the limited resources we have. And the frustrations people feel are real. In Vancouver, the city has announced that the lot the tent city occupies will be the future site of a social housing complex. But to build it, according to the city, the homeless already living there have to leave. In Toronto, Rail Deck Park is arguably the last chance to secure significant green space in the downtown core it will be able to address problems that haven't even quite arisen in full, but will soon. Still, how can a modern wealthy city be evicting its community housing tenants? The broad answer is that cities need to take a holistic approach to its priorities. The more specific answer is, cities need to raise the tax revenue required to pay for these priorities. Growing the pie, as the saying goes, is the best way to strike that balance.
And that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please tell your favorite urban planning grad, your slackliners, and your housing advocates. A like, share, subscribe, or rating on iTunes will help us reach new listeners, if you can spare a moment. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. Please hit us up with any questions, comments, concerns, and tips. We're on Twitter at Spacing Radio, all one word. Or you can email me at G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto. And don't forget to look for our upcoming 21st Century Parks issue. Until next time, I'll be in the park. Cheers. Cheers.